Welcome to the J2 Hub podcast, where we focus on everything from property development, hot entrepreneurially business topics, and real life scenarios facing business owners just like you and I. Brought to you by James Sahota, we bring you exciting real life property, business, and entrepreneurially related hot topics, and that little bit more. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the J2 Hub podcast this Friday morning. Um, today, I'm joined by a gentleman who I have wanted to get onto the podcast for quite a while. He's doing some fantastic things in the HMO space and and, and the co-living space, which I feel strongly is going to be the future of how people live. Um, probably a little bit selfish as well, because I wanted to learn a lot from this guy, because I think I could take a lot away from it. And the more and more podcasts I do, I find that when I'm interviewing someone, I'm there kind of script, or I'm trying to scribble notes so they don't see me on the video scribbling away. But it's just, it simply amazes me at the knowledge that's out there from people. So without um, further ado, I'm joined by uh, uh, Matt Baker, who is the co-founder of the HMO platform and also the co-founder of Scott Baker Properties. So thank you very much, Matt, firstly, for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, thank you. No problems at all, mate. So, uh, Matt, I want to start by asking you, first of all, I'd like to flip it up a little bit. I always ask the question that people ask at the end, in the beginning. Okay. Why is it, why is it property for you and what is your ultimate, what's your ultimate goal from it? Oh, that's a good question. So why property for me? I, I, property was an accident uh, for me because I before I got into property I was a musician so I'm a professional pianist and have been for you know, probably since the age of six when I did my first um, first performance um, and all the way through my teenage years my uh, my 20s I was a professional pianist uh, I would go at a gig I would um, be a piano teacher as well because I very quickly realized that um, being a uh, being a professional musician wasn't going to pay me long term because the income is very up and down and mm-hmm. um, so uh, throughout all of my 20s um, I kind of realized that gradually and um, I did a gig once with a guy who's a guitarist and he was in his early 40s and he was still working in a restaurant trying to make ends meet and I just thought to myself I don't want to be that guy when I get to my 40s and um, that was where I started to think a bit differently going well how can I increase income and make a more consistent income and um, I, that's when I went into teaching and I was teaching piano uh, and the income went up, the consistency went up, but obviously the amount of time, it was very time intensive because you're still um, exchanging time for money. I realized that I, um, I was good at it and I had referrals. So I had people saying, well, you've got to go and have your lessons with Matt. Yeah, yeah he's, he, he's, a, he's a good, fun teacher. Um, you'll learn how to get your kids through, through grades and also you'll teach them some songs and some jazz, piano, all that kind of stuff. So it, it was great. And it was when I was trying to grow that music school business because um, I took on another couple of teachers. I grew it to do different um, instruments. I went to an event that got me um, thinking and I it was a business event so we were talking about social media marketing they were talking about different wealth creation vehicles and one of them was property and it, it kind of made a lot of sense and there was a lady talking about how you could um, you know invest in property with little time and little money and I was like well I don't have uh, very much time at all because I'm constantly <laughs> teaching uh, I don't have any money and um, so I, my ears pricked up and I'd already know or, or, always known that 
to be successful, I would need to get into property at some point. Um, but I just thought it was going to be in the future, I, you know, sometime in the future. I'll do it someday. And um, I'll make my money in music and then invest the money into property. But when I sat in front of, um, sat in that event, um, it all flipped. And I realized, actually, I need to make my money in property. And then that's going to give me the freedom and the time to focus on my music and being creative. So one of the fundamental things, one of the fundamental reasons I got into property was to give me time to be able to create uh, music and um you know l- lots of great stuff which i can leave as a legacy so um lots of stuff which is going to entertain people uh, and i love working mu- with musicians and creating new music um, i don't really enjoy going out there and playing other people's music i like going and working with songwriters and and um and guys that have got you know got their finger on the pulse of what what is good music uh, and really created that um, the second reason why I'm now in property is, is legacy building. So it's creating a legacy for uh, my my family or my future family, um, because uh, as some people know, uh, I'm just about to have uh, my my first child <laughs> at the time of recording. I'm sure I'm sure she's probably turned up by the time this has gone out. Um, but um, yeah. So it's it's about the future family, and those are the reasons, my personal reasons for doing it. Mm-hmm. If you think about the a kind of the wider vision beyond that it's it's to have a a, a massive impact on society through co-living and um i can go into that if, if you would like um yeah yeah we'll touch upon that in, in a moment it just something yeah. you said there legacy building and time i'm finding over and over i've never had legacy building before so that's a new one I've had, yeah. I suppose, kind of creating a generational wealth maybe looked at sim- uh, similar, but legacy building is a new one. But time, time is always the thing that comes up from everybody. Uh, they're always talking about, I want more time to travel. I want more time to do this. I want more time to do that. Matt, let me ask you, is there anything that you're doing right now that helps you to create more time uh, in terms of the way you work in your business? Do you structure things in a way where you try to offload stuff off your plate so you can create immediate time for yourself? Uh, Yes, actually. That's a very timely question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So we've just taken on three new members of staff, um, two of which are based in the Philippines, one which is based in um, the UAE. Uh, so we have, yeah, we've learning to outsource. And um, so the last two months we've been teaching them how to do the things that we do. Um, and actually I've got, um, uh, we've just, I've just created a system of how to, how to test whether our systems are good. So um, what I've been doing, I've been teaching, so I've been um, kind of tracking what I do. So tracking my time uh, of all the tasks. I've then been um, kind of making, um, writing it all down and then teaching it um to the uh, to to the assistants uh, and the people that are actually really great they're, they're so so good they're so um on the ball and just so eager to learn eager to please eager to get the get the, get the stuff done so um we've been doing that and then um my thing that i really love to do is talk about having an easy a system which is efficient which is um um easy to teach to someone else uh, but it's also effective so the three e's of testing my system so i I quite like that so they're efficient effective and easy to teach Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no that it's really good you say that about um virtual assistants in the philippines because i did exactly the same thing when covid started i took one on and only last week i took a second one on because you know like 
I think the easiest way, I try to explain this to people. I say, look, the easiest way to create time is not to wait to the end. You might as well start trying to create time for yourself now. And what you find is with, with the guys in the Philippines, like you just said, they're so fantastic. You know, they're so on the ball. I mean, I think I've, uh, you know, when I work with my VA, it's almost like she's given me the kick up the ass to get stuff done. And yeah. you feel bad if you haven't got enough work to them because you've almost committed to them. And putting these systems in place. I mean, my, my VA handles a lot of the stuff for the podcast now and our new one handles a lot of the stuff for the video bits that we do. But yeah. it, it's just like, I didn't want to do it for a long time because I didn't want to let go of the reins. But the day I let go of the reins, it was like something got lifted off my shoulders and I was just like, oh my God, why did I not do this? And then when you look at the amount of hours you've saved, you look at it over a year and you may have gained 20 extra days, you know, and I don't, you can't put a price on time. I mean, what would somebody pay for 20 extra days, you know? And when you look um, at what you paid your VA, it's not that much. It's not that much at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I just love leveraging the idea of, um, of global economies. So paying someone really well in a different economy, um, it, so yeah, it just doesn't cost us very much, but it's actually a big deal for them. Uh, I, I think is really powerful. So we're able to not just affect change where we are, but starting to affect change globally. And um, you know, as in this kind of connected world that we're all in now through COVID and and uh, Zoom and uh, all being online, um, you know, I think there is a way to affect change beyond just our you know physical borders. Hmm. No, I'm, I'm totally with you on that, Matt. I'm a big supporter of VAs. And uh, uh, the more I use them, I just think, uh, why didn't I do this five years ago or 10 years ago? Because things would be so much different. Oh, seriously, I, I've tried to outsource before. And similarly to yourself, I was always wanting to have the reins. I wanted to see them. I wanted them to come in. So my very first um, PA, I suppose, um, was someone who lived down the road um, where I was living in Warrington. She came to the house. She did the work from the house. And then gradually, as I because I was busy, I was all over the place. I wouldn't be around to sit and, and supervise or mm. you know, work in the same place. So I would be out and she'd be coming to the house and doing the work and I wasn't there. Um, and then she said, well, can I do some work from home? I was like, yeah, I trust you now. So we did it. And, and it ended up being a completely virtual role anyway. Yeah. Um, so, I, But it was always great that she could just come around and for a cup of tea and we'd catch up and go through everything. Uh, which was good but then um, I hired a couple of people uh, VAs that were rubbish and it made a more of a mess than um, than it was worth and I realized I was actually really bad at hiring people Hmm. Um, so that in itself is a skill set so we actually use a uh, a recruitment agency from well have used a recruitment agency for the last few hires that we've done um, including in the Philippines Um, and it's just worked out so so well let someone else sift through all the cvs let someone else identify the the strengths of the weaknesses and then we just can get to know the personalities knowing that the people that are presented are all going to be good and we and can do the job so who's going to then fit in with the rest of the team yeah no i'm with you i did exactly the same thing used to um well use freedom geeks actually um, same, same, same. Yep, yep. And they found us uh, three very strong candidates. And, you know, within minutes of speaking to our VA, we knew this is the one we wanted to work with. Best, best decision I have ever made, hands down. Yep, agreed. So, Matt, um, you got started in property. Tell us about your first project. What did you do? Which way did you go? Which, what was your strategy? Okay, so um, first project was about five years ago. And... Um, I wanted to go into HMO straight away. 
Um, I didn't really want to faff doing too many um, buy-to-lets. And I think because I, I knew that I needed to go through, you know, doing a refurbishment, doing a little, you know, a smaller project before doing larger ones. Um, so what I actually chose to do was to do a buy-to-let and an HMO. And we bought them both on the same day. Well, I say we bought them both on the same day. Um, we went and we viewed them at the same day and we offered them, got the offers accepted. Um, and the buy-to-let went through pretty swiftly. But for various reasons, the one that we were turning into an HMO just took a long time. Um, and it was back in 2016 that we purchased that first um, uh, HMO. Uh, it was the 31st of March 2016 we completed on it. And if you remember back then, that was the day before the hike in stamp duty. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think there was probably thousands of purchases which happened on the 31st of March <laughs> 2016. So we were one of those. So we just pushed and pushed and pushed. But the solicitors were just being an absolute pain in the backside. Um, but um, yeah, the first one, so, so it worked out quite well. It meant that we could buy this bungalow, uh, which was a two-bed bungalow, which was our very first purchase um, just before Christmas 2015. And myself, my mum and my dad went in and we ripped it all out and um, gradually pieced it back together with the help of a handyman. And um, yeah, it probably took twice as long as it should have done. Um, we made quite a few mistakes. Um, we, were up, we were there on Boxing Day, you know, stripping wallpaper, yeah, wow. it, was, it was a good experience to, to do it and to see how the property worked because before that I had absolutely no property experience at all. Um, so, and, and I'd done this course to kind of get me started in property. And then um, by the time that we got around to do this first, this first buy to let property, um, I kind of picked up a bit. But um, when, you, when you buy your first property and someone says, oh, you've exchanged contracts, on, you know, so you just exchanged contracts. Yeah, so, so what's, what do you mean? <laughs> like what, what 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 just happened yeah. uh, um so you go through that those those first per, those first things for the first time um and it's seeing is believing it. it's like oh i bought a house it's the first house i bought and we go in we start ripping out ripping it out like, oh wow this is actually happening start putting it back together so, oh my, my goodness and then you get your first tenant they move in it's like okay this is awesome now you get the money coming in it's like, this is amazing and you start to see it in in um in action um which is just really really exciting and then we did that first one. It was finished and let by the time we purchased our HMO, uh, which meant that we could move from one to the next. And I'd learned the lessons. We got a contractor in, a main contractor to do all the works. And that became a five bed HMO, um, which I call the TARDIS because it looks tiny from the outside, but you go inside and it's quite, it was just massive. Um, and it's an upside down house. So we took the kitchen from downstairs, put it upstairs. And um, it just made a lot more sense because in that particular HMO, the floor area was, there was a greater floor area upstairs and downstairs. Do you want to try right. and work that out? That's odd. It's yeah. normally the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we had this flying freehold, so there's a bit at the back where um, it's, it's, it was like the upstairs was a rectangle and the downstairs was like a normal terraced house. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bit which is normally in the dog leg or the outrigger um, was underneath the, um, uh, the upstairs bit. So it made more sense to put the communal space upstairs than downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Matt, um, you, you did two projects straight away to start off with. Do, do you mind me asking how you raised the funds for them? Yes. Um, I mind. No, I don't mind. Uh, yes. I'm happy to share. Um, it was a family venture thing that um, myself and my mum and my dad purchased those first three. Right. Um, okay. So it, um, I, that, that conversation was not necessarily the easiest conversation to start with uh, because <laughs> As I said, I'd done this course. I knew that I could do it 
um, you know, without raise, without having to use my own money, and I just wasn't sure how that was going to happen. And um, I, I, I was living in Oxfordshire at the time, uh, and um, was had chosen Warrington as my first area because that's where my parents were living. And uh, we come, we drove up, and we were staying in Warrington whilst we were researching all the other areas around Warrington because you know, obviously there's loads of potential great areas in the northwest. So we were going, staying at my parents on the like Friday, viewing properties on a Friday and a Saturday, and then coming back down um, to you know, teach again at the, at the music school on Monday. And um yeah my, my parents just said uh oh, my mum said i've just got my pension lump sum i think i might go buy a property or two and uh, we hadn't told them what we were doing we were just kind of doing it because we thought we weren't sure how they react and at that point i was just like well i probably should tell them what we're up to yeah and so so um we revealed all and said we're actually been coming up to look at properties um we should probably have a chat about this <laughs> yeah 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 um, wow. said, well so we've done a course on property investing and at what point my at which point my dad ran upstairs got this book from the bookshelf came down and showed it to us and it was like the the buy to let guide from like 1991 or something <laughs> i can't even remember who the book was by i probably used to dig it out because yeah. i tell i tell this story a lot and um so my dad waved and said yeah look we were thinking about it in the early 90s and i was like so where are all the properties you know, where's this you know, baker empire uh, that we should have by now if we've been buying properties for 30 years uh, 25 years and um so we had a bit of a joke about that but um then yeah we, we decided yes we're going to go into business together and we're going to buy um a few properties so we bought about three or four properties together um and then they ran out of money and then we basically um leveraged there, well, we leveraged the property portfolio to then go and raise finance, and then from then I've raised over you know, one one and a half million pounds worth of investor finance to to just help us grow the portfolio. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been quite an exciting time when you revealed all, and then your dad wanted to get into property. Was it was it quite a joyful conversation then? Um, yes, it was. It was a it was oh, this is ex- it was an exciting conversation. So we're all getting really excited about it, um, yeah. and and um, we sat down around the kitchen table. And we made an agreement about what we were going to do. Um, and uh, we talked about, well, we, we had the, the conversation that you're supposed to have when you start a joint venture partner about what's going to happen if this, what happens if that. Um, but we probably left off most of the questions. You know, we were like, oh, yeah, this is great. It would be great. And we didn't put any formal agreements in place, which I would do now if I was starting again. And if we did anything else with the family, we'd put a, a formal agreement in place. Um, you know, we did, we had like, um, yeah, this, this yeah, these ideas which we never wrote down, um, which has caused some um, some heat, more heated discussions um, because we didn't write it down. No one can really remember what we agreed. Um, so, um, I, my recommendation would be even working with family, just write it down, keep a record of it, um, and um, you know, cause we, we learned to now. Obviously, we we track things, we have agreements. Um, especially with our investors, with our joint venture partners, um, because um, yeah, learned, learned the hard way with my parents. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, all good. it's all good now. It's all good now. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I, um, me and my wife run our property company together, and we've often uh, reached out to my mother-in-law, who's uh, fairly liquid, and she's lent us uh, money in the past. And I remember the first time we wrote up this whole loan agreement just to say, here, the, here it is. This and this. You know, we hand it to her. And the first thing she does is rip it up and chuck it in the bin. She's like, I don't need no loan agreement. You know, you, you've, you know, I, I trust you guys. And the best thing was like, 
we gave her the money back in, I think, about 11 months. And she had no idea that we were giving her a return. So we deposit the money back into her account, the main, the main amount of money. And then we went to visit her on the weekend for some lunch. And we gave her a return in cash. So it was a big envelope. So we wanted to bit, make a bit of an impact. And she's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what is this? What is this? She's having Amazing. a word with my father-in-law. He's having a go at me. And he's like, we did not lend you this money to get a return back. But it's just so... It's just such a nice feeling when you can when you can rely on someone like that or someone trusts you enough to lend you the money and everything goes so right. Now there was plenty of problems along the way with the build, but none of which we shared with them because we didn't ever want to put them in a position where they felt that, oh, this could go terribly wrong. So me and my wife always dealt with the problems ourselves and and it was a great feeling yeah. to get the family involved. And now it when we're doing a project or we, we talk about a project with them, first thing they say is, Can we come in? can we come in because we know we're going to get a decent return from you and it's just like we don't need any agreements don't need nothing can we work with you so it's nice to get to that position because it's a very awkward conversation to have i find when you're asking someone for money yeah it it, it can be but i think again it comes down to your perception of the conversation so if you are confident in what you're talking about say this is a business this is something that we're doing and you don't ask for money that's you know, the best way that we find it. We just talk about what we do. Um, and if someone expresses an interest, then we share with them more details of what we do. Um, and then eventually people go, actually, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I want to get involved in that um, because people invest with people they like, know, they trust. And um, we very rarely have to actually ask for, for money. There's a point where you go, well, are you going to invest? And they say yes or no. Or they say maybe, which is really annoying. Um, so generally we yeah. frame that conversation <laughs> saying, uh, we just want to know, you know, is this in principle something you're, you're going to do or is it something that you're not going to do? If you're thinking, if you're th- still thinking about it or you're, you're going to say, maybe we don't say that, just choose, you know, go yes or no. Um, and then that's absolutely fine. Whatever decision is absolutely fine. It just means that we can move on. Um, because, uh, we, mm. we, again, we learned that the hard way by being strung along for ages by a couple of investors and they just, um, they just pulled out. So, um, and you just don't want to be spending lots of energy with people who are, who are just going to mess you around at the end of the day. You want to work with people who are going to follow through, who are, um, have the same vision and values uh, and um, that, that just get it. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. So Matt, going back to your first HMO, the Upside Down House, um, yep. how did you tackle this project? Did you know what you were going to do or was it a bit of a let's get in there and put a plan together? Uh, well, I think we went through about three or four iterations of how we wanted to do the project. And it, it was actually the builder that suggested doing it upside down. And we were like, well, this this is a really good idea. So we got the um, the technician that drew the, the plans to do as a couple of options. And the, the aim was to do it as a six bed HMO. But when we got in there and started laying it out, we were like, actually, no, this would be better to do five better bedrooms rather than six bedrooms where we compromise uh, two or three of them so and that's what we decided to do and we we did use a plan drawer we've always used someone to draw up the plans i know some people just go in and they lay out gaffer tape or planks of wood on the floor and and, that can work um but we have learned that it is better to have a set of plans that everyone can refer to so there is no confusion about what's supposed to happen um and yeah, we just we just got a main contractor in who was recommended through through um, uh, another colleague, and he did a great job on on the project. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just coming back to where you said you always recommend having a plan drawer, um, do you use someone who understands HMO regs or are you having to advise them or how does it work? So the, the first guy that we used was just an just a technician um, who would do building regs drawings for HMOs every day. So he knew the HMO regs. It was a very basic um, but detailed enough for building control to, 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 to sign it off and for the builder to work from. Uh, we now, because we do much larger projects, we have a design team. So we have an architect, we have a structural engineer, um, we have an interior designer, and they all work together to put a, a tender pack which goes out to a builder and then the builder quotes line by line um, on, on that so that we can compare like with like if the builder turns around and says, oh, this would be 120 grand. We're like, well, fill out the form and then you can tell me it's 120 grand. So we don't just take um, yeah. round numbers um, because you just don't know what you're comparing. When you, yeah, you, no, you I agree with you. In. Yeah. It's off, I've often wondered that when they kind of give you a um, – like a combined quote and you think well how have you come to that figure is it just like what way the wind's blowing or something today and how have you worked this out or are you going to get three quarters of the way and come to me and say look James I've run out of money um I need some more you know it's always puzzled me how they get to that combined quote so you're very meticulous now on line by line needing to know what's going on uh, yeah, and um, because we work with uh, bridging lenders and development lenders who uh, will give you money in drawdowns, uh, you have to work that way because they want to see um, invoices where uh, money is being assigned to work being finished. So they want to see that first fixed electrics is done. So it, it's ticked off and then that is what you know, three grand's worth or five grand's worth of money and then they will release that money. So even if you're funding it yourself, uh, having that same approach whereby there's a, uh, even if it's a list of, it could be a list of 20 items or it could be a list of 100 items, depending on how detailed you go. Um, but you can say, well, okay, so first fix electrics is done and that was £3,000. So as a client, I'm now happy to pay that £3,000. And that's really a job that a, a project manager or an architect can do to administer a contract. Um, and you know, you might think it's overkill on smaller projects, um, but you don't. But to have someone go in on your behalf every two or three weeks just to sign things off and go, yes, things are going as they should, um, especially if you're not experienced in construction. Um, because mm-hmm. you, know, you say to me, like, I, I wouldn't know what insulation was supposed to go where. I wouldn't know what type of bracket to use here. Um, you know, put it so that's not my forte. It's not my skill set within this industry. Um, but we have great people that do know that so obviously I've picked up a few things over the years but realistically having someone there to go yes everything's going right and the builder's not overspent um he's not asking for too much money you know, the, the payment is realistic for the money that's that's happened uh, and we, we always do that so we have an agreed um schedule and the schedule is um tied to some milestones so they'll get a payment when they get to this point they'll get a payment when they get to this point uh, which generally should be tied to the time scale as well Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you're always in front as well um so you know we should so yeah so they get should, should be paid in arrears so a little bit of money up front for a few materials but then everything would be yeah. maybe pay, uh, fortnightly paid in arrears so oh you've done two weeks worth of work um, and that's 12 grand's worth of work that's absolutely fine we'll pay that um mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. No, fantastic. Matt, you said something about project managers. I've used one in the past and it was absolutely delightful. I didn't want to do it at first because I was 300 miles from my chosen location. It just Mm -hmm. made perfect sense to have someone because 
every time you get on a train, you go up there, you realize I'm staying the night, I'm having some food, I've paid my train costs, I'm spending a couple of hundred pounds every time I come up here. Now, we always pay our project manager 10% of the build cost with a kind of a bit of a bonus in the back end if he brings it in uh, lower than that and some kind of incentive as well along the way. How do you structure your deals with your project managers? So up to this point, uh, yeah, it's been a percentage of the build. Um, so the yeah, to ten percent would be a, a a number if they're doing all the work. So if it's an architect that's doing drawings, etc., then we would do ten percent. If it's someone who's um, just doing uh, site visits, it'd probably be less than ten percent. Um, but again, it's a similar a similar um, structure where they go every week or every two weeks to site. They're checking everything. Um, but now we're actually in the process of hiring a project manager to work for us um, on a essentially a full-time basis uh, so that they will oversee all our projects and they'll also work with our with our clients so we've got a mastermind group where um, they'll be offering advice and um, be able to check tenders and and do stuff for them as well okay okay yeah i mean in our in our instant we um we pay 10 percent, but they kind of organize everything you know they'll yeah. source the materials they're sourcing tiles they're they're really going into in some in-depth and I find some people who are like, you know, you know what, I'll go up on the weekend and I'll do it myself. And it's like, I say to them, I go, look, man, the weekend is too long. If something's going to happen, your PM needs to know about it straight away. If there's a disaster going to happen or if there isn't a certain degree of support or if there's a crack in the wall that needs to be addressed, yeah. you need to know that before plasterboard's covering it. And time and time again, people would want to save that small percentage of money, end up with such big issues at the end or partway through the project just because they're trying to tighten the reins and on the wrong things i find oh yeah no i agree i think um paying the money you know, great professional fees will save you money so you might say well why am i spending two and a half grand on an architect so well because they can design the future problems out of your scheme so they can find solutions before it becomes a problem um so that two and a half grand you might have spent maybe a grand more than you might have done if you got you know, a less qualified technician to do it. Um, but they're not necessarily going to think about the space, the design, the, where the furniture goes. Um, because, you know, I, I see it a lot. And we've had it on a couple of projects where we've not used someone who's thought about it going, well, where on earth are we going to put the bed in this room? Like there's no straight <laughs> wall to put a bed. In. You know, where does the bed go? And yeah, you know, we've, we've, uh, and so, um, so when you, we have to then change things on site to go, right. Okay. So we're going to move the door. There's actually a space for the bed. Um, and you've, we've had builders put doors right in the middle of a wall. So you walk in, it's like, right, so now where does the bed go? So why don't we have the door to one side so that you can get a long yeah. wall to put a bed against it? And um, so there is a bit of um, lack of common sense sometimes, but we don't have those issues anymore because they're designed away at the very beginning. And obviously you go on site and mm -hmm. things change slightly, um, but you then got the architect who is being paid for the job who can then go and find the solution and um, give it to the builder uh, to then construct if, if it's not an obvious solution that we can just sort on site. So paying that money up front can save you a lot of money and it's, it means that your build contract is much more likely to come in on, on, on time and on budget. Mm-hmm. Matt, I want to ask you something you said earlier where you said you lost a room because you wanted to have sizable rooms. Now, I find there's two types of people that do HMOs. One like yourself who actually really thinks about the whole co-living. I've heard you speak on webinars before, and I know you're very passionate about this. And then there's 
developers that just look and think oh okay there's six square meters or six and a half square meters let's shove another room in there and not think all right you know what we'll put that into the living room and let's try and make a the communal space a little bit better with some maybe some high desks or where people can congregate together on laptops and have a conversation is there a minimum kind of room size you always aim for and have you in the past gone right to the border with sizes um so the answer is yes to both of those uh so yes now we have a minimum room size which is 10.2 uh, square meters so we make sure that every single room is above the double occupancy uh, minimum standard which is 10.2 for national uh, which is also future proofing because that means that when licensing changes because it will because six and a half, 6.51 square meters is small that's a very small bedroom mm-hmm. uh, licensing will change then that will become higher it's just a matter of when this already happened um in 2018 when they brought in mandatory licensing for up to five people um regardless of so from five people and above and um, regardless of the number of stories of the property um so uh we put, there's i know there's some people that lost probably about a quarter of their portfolio of course the rooms in their portfolio because they were putting people in a box room which was an illegal room to occupy because it was less than 6.5 square Mm. meters um so um, i think we'll see that again uh with some properties where let's say that um, minimum licensing requirement then goes up to seven or eight square meters it's going to put some rooms out of consideration so we want to be future-proofed but also we want to make sure that there's enough space in a room for uh, a bed a desk you know wardrobes uh, en suites as well so we have an ensuite on top of that and majority of our rooms will have an ensuite so we will say like 13 square meters is probably the minimum amount of space that we need per bedroom uh, when we're doing a new scheme but you asked the question about did we go close to the mark yes we have uh, one room which is 6.51 square meters on the dot it's a single room it's our hardest room to fill by far um so um we, we are look, even does it looking, have an ensuite Matt? it does it's 6.51 square meters plus an ensuite so it is more appealing than others um but mm-hmm. it is one of our hardest rooms to rent um because we still add a little bit of premium of price because of the ensuite and um, there was a price that it was let out all day long um but as you'll have seen in our webinars you know we don't like to get into a price war we like to um showcase quality and quality of service which does attract tenants um but also if we drop the price right down you're, you're going to suddenly get a different demographic of person that might not then fit with the rest of the house which then might cause issues with the house so we're trying to put a, a you know a group of people together that can get on that can conform a community so when you're when you've got that in mind the price can have an impact on that mm-hmm. so what's the what's the, you said it's very difficult to fill or can be tough to fill what's the kind of feedback you get when people have a look at that room it's because we can't get a because um, most all of our rooms apart from that room have got a double bed in them. Even our slightly smaller mm-hmm. ones, like eight square meters, have just I've got a, a like a, a small double, say a four foot double in it. This room it didn't fit, so it's got a single bed. So um, wow. that's okay. That so that's why it's harder to rent because it's got a single bed in it, um, and because there are so many rooms out there with double beds, um, the tenants go and they see. Um, double beds even the small doubles and they go yeah i'll take that one i'll take that one and so you need someone who um is is there for the for the location um or maybe know someone else in the house um so someone who who would say i'm going to compromise and take a single bed 
so that's the main reason mm-hmm. okay the, the the reason why i asked you matt because our, our most recent project that we've started it's been bugging me for a while uh it's something i was actually going to ask you so much just ask you now <laughs> there's <laughs> a few rooms in there that are just over 10 square meters so touching 10 and a half and 11 by the time we put an ensuite on them, they're kind of dropping to seven and a half or just over seven and a half. Now, layout drawings, looking at it, we get a small double in there, we get a wardrobe. It's still okay, but it just it just worries me that will it get to a point where that might be very, very difficult to let, even with a small double and an ensuite, at, even at that size? It would depend on where it is in the country. It depends on your market, uh, who you're trying to attract, uh, the price point you're trying to you know, trying to get to. Um, the it's not something that we would do these days, and it's something we would advise that um, it would be probably better in that instance to maybe combine those two ensuites into one bathroom and have two slightly larger rooms and maybe one bathroom between them. Um, so we would never have more than two people sharing one bathroom, but you can make a, a bathroom quite epic, um, and it also gets cleaned mm-hmm. by the cleaner, so it is, it's quite a, an attractive thing for a tenant. However, we are going to see a shift towards people wanting more en suites because of coronavirus being able to self-isolate, etc. So people thinking, right, what if this happens in the future? Because it's possible we could have another pandemic, uh, which could be more severe than corona. I know corona has been severe for some, but... Um, you know, as as a whole, you know, the, the the coronavirus could have been a lot worse, or it could have been a, something else, which could have been a lot more deadly. So, um, with that in mind, being able to self isolate in in your room, I think, is something that people will want to be able to do more of. So, the ensuite is a positive. Um, will it become difficult to let? I think the answer is that depends. Um, I think if you can get home working in your property so the communal area will probably have an impact so if you can make that larger to counter the fact that the room is smaller um that would bring people there as well but i I would aim for 10 as as the minimum for the amount of space in the room and then have an ensuite on top normally right okay no that's very good to know it's uh it's really been playing on my mind and bugging me over the last few days because the project we finished before that was a hell of a lot larger yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought let me ask you about that. So thank you for that advice. No problem, Matt. I want to ask you about co-living. What is co-living? People confuse it all the time. Oh, co-living is just HMOs. No, it's not in my eyes. Um, do you want to explain co-living a little bit more in depth, please? Yeah, I, I think there are those that say, "Oh, co-living just just the new buzzword for HMO," but it's not at all. Um, an HMO is a house of multiple occupation. It's a thing. It's a, it's defined in the Housing Act. It is uh, the asset, the house that you create. It has rules and regulations around it, and it's a clinical asset that goes into your portfolio. So that's the house. Now, co-living is like the wrapper that goes around the house that makes the magic work. So co-living is when you have a sense of community in the in the building. It's where you have space that allows for people to uh, really enjoy that space as their as their own as their home Uh, but then also it engenders um, communications between the tenants Um, and quite often there's that that brings in technology so that we've got um, tech that can help the tenants to communicate um, and just the level of service is so important um, when you're creating co-living because when you when you encourage the 
formation of a community through having great communal spaces, great outdoor spaces, um, you know, ability to work from home spaces, then um, what you have is tenants that will stay in your property a lot longer and quite often they will pay a lot more as well. So co-living to me is is two things. Uh, the first thing is um, the uh, it's basically a next level HMO. A next level HMO is that asset that you create, which has all that space uh, within it to help the formation of community and then um, the service that is then provided. So we don't view lettings agents as uh, as managing agents. It's just the wrong way to view the future of co-living. Uh, the future of co-living is that technology is going to deal with all the management. Um, it's going to take that bit away from the managing agent. So the managing agent's job then becomes a community manager. So for and a completely different to buy to let. So when you're running co-living, um, the, the, the main focus of a managing agent's time should be on how do we make this community work better? What can we do to help these, um, we call them tenants, or actually we prefer to call them housemates or members of the community um, because that gives them more of a, it gives them more of a face. When you call someone a tenant, uh, it dehumanizes them. So we want to create, you know, call them members of the community. Uh, we're, we've settled on housemates as something that we quite like. So uh, we call them housemates. Um, and so how can we uh, help these housemates have a better life um, in this in this property, in this home? And uh, that's the first question we ask when we talk about our property business uh, in our board meetings. We say, well, what can we do to improve the the service that we provide our um, our, our housemates uh, in our portfolio? Um, so we think we come up with we try to come up with interesting ways to to, to um, help the formation of community. You know, like um, putting on um, a, a send them out for dinner or send them out for for drinks in the local bar. Obviously, we haven't done that. We've sent them beer and pizza. Um, send them board games, um, do you know, virtual wine tastings, do, you know, um, poetry readings, all these things that um, can bring people together. And obviously the, the types of types of events or the types of um, things that you do will depend on the local area, will depend on the tenants in the property. And you don't force them to do it. You just encourage that formation of the community. Um, and it, what that will do is increase tenant well-being. It will reduce the amount of loneliness because loneliness is on, on is on the increase. And I think we're going to see a shift um, because of COVID um, towards people wanting to connect more. People are starting to talk to each other again. Social media has been dividing people, but over over COVID is starting to bring people together um, through using you know, video conferencing like Zoom. In fact, it's becoming the norm. Whenever I'm, I'm, I make a make a phone call now and someone picks up it's like oh, i thought we were doing this via zoom you know, people expect to see your face <laughs> when you're doing video conferencing and you know it's like um science fiction is generally you know, reality is now caught up with science fiction um where you know, a, a, a video call is the normal thing to do um but coming back to your question i waffle so i apologize for that um but coming back to your question a co-living is um a it's the wrapper that goes around a great HMO um, where you have a greater sense of well-being within that property, within that community of people that live in with it. Um, so they are feeling better, they have better well-being, and therefore it translates into your bank balance, which then gives you as the landlord um, 
or the operator of that HMO a greater sense of well-being and a much better and more viable and resilient business. Mm. Wow, that's some really, there's some re- real bits of information there, Matt. Like, I mean, number <laughs> one for me that just stood out there. Yeah, yeah. And like when you said you waffled, I was like, no, you didn't. You just gave us some real value there. Um, where you said like, you know, just sending them over a pizza or maybe some beers or some board games or virtually doing something. I just realized one thing, sometimes uh, as important as the space is where they, where they get together and form their communities, sometimes it might just be as simple as, booking five of them down the local pub on a Sunday for a roast dinner, which might happen to be the pub next door to the house anyway. Yeah. Well, obviously you're not going to do that every single week, but once in a blue moon yeah. as a surprise, you say, okay, guys, um, hey, thank you for being great tenants. Thank you for looking after the house. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's Easter weekend or whatever, um, whatever reason you want to come up with for sending them out and just say, yep. So we're going to send all six of you, all eight for you of, of you, for, for, for dinner and, and you can you can organize it directly with the uh, the pub and say right can you give me a deal for eight roast dinners please <laughs> um, yeah yeah so what we would generally do is talk to local businesses um not yeah. necessarily the larger ones and we come to arrangements we promote them and you know and form community within the property but then also without because um co-living i believe is and the formation of almost little cells of of, of properties because we've got what, what some people would call uh those large scale co-living where you've got massive blocks so 500 600 people sharing one kind of hotel style co-living um it's very easy to get lost within a building like that um we've done lots of research we sent out surveys and, and surveyed hundreds of landlords and tenants um to find out what um and what works within properties and you know we felt like the one thing that came back was that um tenants like to share within with three or four other people that's the the number that works so whenever we're creating an hmo because we do um anything from a four bed minimo if the numbers stack um we we've only done one of those to be fair um but um generally we will do larger ones seven eight nine bedrooms all the way up to 22 bedrooms which is our largest one currently but we always design them to create a community of, of smaller communities within it Smaller clusters within the bigger. Smaller cl- clusters within within a larger HMO or a larger um, space, and um, even when we're when we're creating the smaller ones, we're having breakout spaces. So, um, for an eight bed HMO, you might have a very large um, living kitchen, like a wow living kitchen style dining area, and then you might have a slightly smaller breakout space somewhere else, um, so that you can have two groups of people socialising together, but then also they can socialise uh, in one space. Just a different mm-hmm. way of thinking about it, so that the space works for the number of people. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, some people might say, why would you do that when that could be an extra bedroom in the property? But then I would come back to the numbers, and I did this in a webinar recently, um, where I, I showed the difference between um, doing uh, six poorly put together or six um, smaller bedrooms, which get the average rent in the area, and then five epic bedrooms, which get the highest rent in the area. And you are better off financially by doing the five beds rather than the six beds. So it actually makes commercial sense oh, yeah. to do larger bedrooms than it does to do smaller bedrooms and pack them in. It's also easier to fill. Mm-hmm. It's a smaller community, which is easier to manage. Um, it's less people, so it's less expensive to run. 
Um, so it's yeah, it does make commercial sense to use the space effectively and not just put in as many bedrooms as you can see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, some some really good tips there. Matt, how important is an outdoor space? I mean, we're looking at some buildings that don't have a very big outdoor space. They're going to be H6, H6 bed HMOs. Yep. Uh, it concerns me in the sense that, especially with stuff that's gone on with COVID, uh, I realise how important an outdoor space is to people. Yep. Um, what's your opinions on it in a, in a six bed HMO? How important is it? I would say it's very important to have outside space. It doesn't need to be massive. So um, I can imagine that you're probably looking at terraced houses. Is it? Ter- yeah. Two, yeah. So what it is, is it's a couple of terraced houses that have been joined together to form a six bed HMO. Well, it was social yep. housing building, which was very, very badly run. Uh, and we're looking to take them we're taking two of these properties on so 12 rooms changing them into um student hmos because they're right opposite the university well that sounds sounds good um location wise um do they not have if you've if you bought these two properties together um is there a combined courtyard at the back where people can hang out uh a very small space because what the previous guys have done is they have extended it to get a larger kitchen diner out okay so um, my thoughts on that would be try and use the outside space as efficiently as you can. Um, I think it is like the outside space, especially with students, is a selling factor um, because, uh, you know, being able to just hang out. Actually, to be honest, when I was at university, I lived in flats. We didn't have outside space, but we were very close to a really nice park. So you think about what's mm-hmm. around. So if you don't have that amenity like directly attached with your property, is there a park over the road so that when you're marketing it, you can be like so close to this amenity space where you can get outside. So that's the way that I would approach that if the numbers worked. Um, and to just think how effectively can you use the outside space so designing it well, putting in, I mean, if there's space to put in a barbecue um, outside or a little decking area so that someone, so that if someone does smoke, they can, so they're encouraged to smoke outside, not inside, because as much as you, you don't want anyone to smoke in your property, um, undoubtedly someone always tries to. So the more you can do to encourage <laughs> them to smoke outside uh, is good. Um, obviously without mm-hmm. seeing it, I wouldn't know what you could do, but um, having a some kind of outside space, which is, been well designed well thought through with some greenery and uh, some you know, plants which your cleaner can just water um that's what i would suggest always an added bonus yeah yeah always, always an, i wouldn't say it was an added bonus now i would say it's um, a prerequisite of an hmo is to buy something where you can at least get a table and chairs to sit outside even if it's a small one so that um out of those six people um you know two or three of them might be able to just sit around a table outside if it even right, okay. Noted. Again, very good advice there. Matt, I want to ask you about um, figures. Now, I'm fed up of hearing this all the time where people are talking about, oh, you know, I'm only doing it if I get all my money out. I'm not leaving any money in a deal. I need this certain percentage return. And I find people overanalyze stuff and they don't actually get the damn deal done because they've just talked themselves out of it. When you guys assess a, assess a deal, do you have a strategy where you're looking to pull all your money out or is there a certain percentage return on that you work with or how do you guys assess a deal? So uh, the answer to that is it depends. (laughs) Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. probably. And I think 
um, when people have a very strict um, criteria, I th- but they should have a really strict criteria for themselves. But because we work in a few different structures, um, it depends on what the deal is, who we're working with, etc. And and people, I've had a couple of people say to me, "Oh, what types of return? You know, what returns do the, does co living give you?" And it's like, well, it can give you whatever return you choose to you know, to have. You just you design the deal to give you the return that you want, and and you find the deals that give you the return that you want. Um, and if you want all your money out, you're going to find very few of them, but you'll find them. It'll just take a very long time to go and, and get loads of them. Um, if you're going for a 10% return on your cash, you're going to find lots of them, and you'll be able to create some really amazing properties really quickly, um, but you're going to leave loads of money left in. But it's going to be returning for you. So if, if, if someone's got a million quid, they want to go do a portfolio of you know 10 um, fantastic eight-bed sewage and areas, um, co-living properties um they will have an amazing time and they will do really well but they'll only get 10 percent return on their cash um whereas someone else might might set the bench at 20 percent. someone else might set the bench at 50 percent. now for us we do use investor finance and we do joint ventures so for it to work for us we probably need at least a 40 percent return 50 percent return on cash so um after the refinance so it enables us to be able to feed ourselves and feed an investor uh, or the jv partner um, so that can work work really well. Um, but again, if you do joint ventures, it's shared risk, shared reward. So if things do go over, then obviously the amount of money left in is going to be higher. Um, you know, in terms of money and money out, we've only ever done that once. I'm not going to shout, you know, put my hands up and say, yeah, we pull out all of our money every single time because it just doesn't happen. It just it would mean that we were just sitting on our hands most of the time looking for properties. Um, mm-hmm. So we prefer to get out there, get deals done. And the great thing about property is that over time, you do pull money out. With doing next level HMOs is what we call our style of HMO, an HMO to the next level. Um, and they get a higher cash flow, which when you get, get higher cash flow, it gives you more options. So you can turn over cash, you can use cash to pay back investors and, um, and you can refinance properties, you can do flips. So what we um, do, well, someone asked me this the other day, if you were going to do something differently, uh, what would you do differently uh, if you were to start again? And I said, well, I'll probably do more flips earlier on um, to mm-hmm. you know, to realize some more capital and rather than being 100% reliant on investors, uh, which we're not these days, but um, we're st- we still use a lot of investors all the time. Um, so, so, yeah, in terms of criteria, we look for a 40, 50% return on cash after uh, refinance as a minimum. But obviously, if we can get that number down, uh, if we get that number up, obviously we'll do. Mm-hmm. And that's if you're you're joint venturing with someone, or that's a, if you've got a finance we, partner that needs to be paid back. Yep. So that's if we're we're working with someone like that, uh, definitely. And if and we are we we coach clients who um, don't need as much as higher return. So a lot of our clients are very happy with it between a ten to twenty percent return. And then when we show them they can get more if they change their criteria, they're very happy when they hit thirty percent. Um, but they're also very happy at twenty percent. So um, yeah, we help them to find those deals and to you know, and, and to show them how to improve what they do um, over the long term to improve their return. Yeah, and, and ultimately I mean, their cash flow. Some of the oh, sorry, yeah, some of the people I speak to, the the kind of magic number that I. I'm trying I'm getting from people is well I don't look at it unless I'm getting 25% and I've got a payback period of no more than four years is what I've heard from quite a few people when I speak to them now but they're not using investor finance that's their own funds 
their own funds. Yep, twenty five percent. Yeah, very achievable uh, with with next level HMOs because a payback period of four years would be a twenty five percent return. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you think that's that would be, in your opinion, that would be good. Well, uh, it it, it yeah, for, for somebody that's good. For some for somebody that's excellent. For somebody <laughs> else that's rubbish. Um, so yeah. I, I think um, for twenty, if someone said to you, "Here's a hundred thousand pounds." and um i'm going to give you a 25 percent return on it would you be happy i certainly would be okay so if i said to you here's a hundred thousand pounds uh, i'm going to give you a 15 percent return on it would you be happy i'd probably um and ah a little bit but again that's a bloody good return compared to what i'd get on that money sitting in my bank well exactly so um you do have to put these things into perspective and um mm. you, you do hear a lot of people saying oh we're getting this return we're doing that this is amazing i pull all the money out and and i think what that does is it it tarnishes people's view of when they're doing it themselves they get confused as to what is possible with their strategy and maybe because they don't have a strategy or they, they haven't got a, a clear vision of what they're looking for so they're, they're looking for this yeah. shiny penny um of something which maybe they don't, they don't have clear in their head of how it actually works um, because some mm-hmm, deals you mm-hmm. can you can do money in money out you know, all the time um if you but, but but also what you see on social media isn't always what's re- reality as well it's what people want you to see um mm-hmm. so you know we put out some good stuff but we also say well this was a problem this is a problem and um uh, you know if we had another two hours i could go through all of the uh uh, we'll probably, probably the rest of the day yeah we could go through all of the ups and downs that we've had uh, w- within the business um and we've just got one project which has taken two years to get sorted it should have only been a year it's about 18 months maximum so um yeah we've lost lost quite a bit of time on it um due to having a building control approved inspector that went bust um through having um you know, um, you know, issues with with the builder, with certain members of his team, through having then COVID, for example. Um, so you, you you get through these issues. You know, we had um, thefts on site. You have all these that kind of issue after issue after issue that you overcome. You sort that. You resolve that, and then the world lands you with a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. See, I think you're right, man. This is the stuff that they don't tell you on social media. It's always dressed up very nicely. Get yeah. all your money out, and like yourself. In my in my time in property, I've only ever got my money out once, and that was because the market was rising and it was kind to me. Yeah. No way do I ever look at a deal now and think, or be I'm not that naive where I think I'm going to get all my money out because it's not happened for a long time. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so I think, yeah, realistically, let's look at you know, finding a strategy that works for someone, and let's look at finding you know, and that would come down to what they're looking for are they looking for a capital strategy an income strategy are they looking for um are are they using investor finance are they using their own finance are they you know pulling money out of other properties to fund their new properties there are so many different moving parts that i don't think that um having a fixed return and say i'm not going to do a deal unless it's 50 percent return is going to serve somebody um you know we we look at a deal and go well actually this one is there or thereabouts it's a 37 percent return would we not do that for the sake of three percent um when we've over you know we've put in so many contingencies along the way likely it is it's probably going to be over 40 percent probably still do that Mm -hmm. to get it done um because actually then that means that 
you know, we're operating, we're increasing our cash flow, we're increasing our equity because most of the deals that we do, we kind of more than double the value of the properties, um, but we spend a lot on them to get them to that, that point. Mm-hmm. No, some really, really sound advice there. Matt, I've got loads of questions for you. I could go on for hours, but you know, <laughs> I'm going to have to try and bring this podcast to a close. One last question for you, Matt. I noticed your, um, when I've seen you on webinars, you talk a lot about uh, Nimbus Maps. Uh, it's something yeah. that I've trialed and found very useful to gather information myself. How is, how is Nimbus Maps helping you in your HMO strategy? So, yeah, we love Nimbus. Um, they're good friends of ours. And, um, yeah, it very... Uh, yeah, it was great to do the partnership together. Um, yeah, when it comes to HMOs, so the uh, we we use it for for sourcing. We use it for deal appraisal. Um, we use it for um, deal tracking. Uh, we use it for um, finding power team members. Uh, yeah, we we use it for checking where HMOs are, for sending letters out, um, for being very specific on what we're looking for. Um, they really well this year they really ramped up how it can be used for HMOs and because they're not ex- experts on it um, I've been able to sit with them and, and go through what we really need as HMO landlords and investors uh, and developers to um, help us with our businesses so um, because they're really great at being responsive they've just been putting in stuff like the HMO overlay so we can see where they are and um, mm-hmm. we've requested they they map out the article for areas we're requesting you know all sorts of different things that are going to help us to um you know with with our with our you know, development journeys yeah no like you matt i think it's fantastic i mean i've been trialing it for about i think nine days now so i'm coming to the end of my trial and like you say the overlays and everything like that has been absolutely superb on it so yeah big fan of that that brings me towards the end of the podcast here um i've got uh, one last question for you, Matt. If you could go back to when you were eighteen, what would you tell yourself? Two bits of advice. Oh, okay. So, I think if I, I would say what what the first thing would be, don't defer. Don't defer your life to others. So take control of your own future, um, and have control of of what you're doing and, and your choices um so i've seen that in music i deferred my future to to, to someone else um in a band and the, the, the choices that they made uh, directly affected what i was doing i think that would be the same for anyone who's in a job um who's making yeah working on someone else's vision and not your own so get your own vision and and, yeah, and work on it and find the people that can help you to achieve your vision whether that whether they're in the philippines or the uk so that'll probably mm-hmm. be my first piece of advice. And the second one would be to to remember to not to, to, to take time, to take time out. And this is what I have to keep reminding myself to take time out because I'll very happily work to 11 o'clock at mid, no, midnight, wait and then I'll wake up at six and be straight on it. Um, and then my other half will will tell me off and say well you're going to burn yourself out and you know, i've been doing this for years and years and years uh, even with music etc um so just take time out the reason being is because you actually have your best ideas when you're relaxed when you're not working and so taking holidays is a is a must and i can't wait to be able to take my first holiday uh, with the family so that i can get out um, and yeah you do. I, yeah, you write. You write blogs. You end up. You end up working whilst you're on holiday. But actually, mm. it's not. It's your. It's your best stuff. 
Um, yeah. And then you just send it back to your team, say, oh, I just had this idea. I just recorded this video. Um, so, yeah, take your holidays. Yeah, and no, that's some really fantastic advice there, Matt. Appreciate that. Matt, if people want to connect with you, uh, reach out to you, find out if they can get some you know, further advice, where can they find you? So uh, we attempt to be everywhere, but we can't be everywhere all at once. So um, I suggest uh, follow us um, at the HMO platform or at Scott Baker Properties on Instagram and Facebook. And if anyone wants to have a chat about their own HMO portfolios, their strategies, um, then um, they can you know, book in to have a strategy call. Yeah, I'll just do that totally for free. Um, so you just mentioned that you heard me on the podcast um, then I'm very happy to do that. And uh, I'll give you a link, James, that we can use for people to to book in just to have a, you know, a, a one-to-one uh, kind of 45-minute chat. Very, very happy to do that. That's fantastic. Uh, Matt, once again, thank you very much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. I know you're super busy and you're expecting your first child anytime now. So I'm glad I got you in for a podcast because no doubt you, uh, you're going to disappear after this week. I've, I've got a funny feeling. So Thank you once again for joining me on the J2 Hub podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, uh, James. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the J2 Hub podcast with James Sahota. If you like the podcast, feel free to subscribe so you never miss another podcast from James. And if you got value from this podcast, do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you consume your podcast content from. And remember, you're never too late to become something you truly want to become.